Before we get started, I'm excited to share a show with you from some of our friends. It's called Sunstorm, hosted by Aijen Pu and Alicia Garza. Aijen and Alicia are two of the leading organizers in America, and the show is all about how women help each other stay joyful and powerful amidst the chaos of life today. And you may remember that we had Aijen on the show to talk about the caring infrastructure in our very first season ever, back in 2018. Their new season is all about what now, how do we win the future, and how do we keep learning? Each week, they talk to their friends and heroes about their inspirations, finding their center, and what each one of us can do to make the changes we want to see in the world. Subscribe to Sunstorm wherever you're listening to this show. Like all of our bosses have a lot of power over our lives. And so with this study, I'm really just kind of shining light on another corner of that power in these other jobs where they aren't considered workers. There's something else. They're an athlete. They're a prisoner in good standing. They're a welfare recipient. And their bosses have power over whether they can really stay in that status. And it turns out to be quite a lot of power indeed. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a civic engagement podcast. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. In this episode, I speak with Erin Hatton, a sociologist who studies work. She found a surprising connection between college athletes, prison laborers, graduate students, and welfare recipients who participate in work programs. Their bosses wield an incredible amount of power over them, not just to hire or fire, but to actually impact the course of their lives. She writes about it in her book, Coerced, Work Under the Threat of Punishment. Stories from some of the 120 workers she interviewed reveal how a growing swath of workers in this country truly are coerced by a system that doesn't recognize them as real employees. We start our conversation with a description of the types of workers she wrote about. I look at four really, really different groups of workers. And I just want to emphasize that right out front, that I'm not saying that these groups of workers are the same in basically any way. They're super different. So I look at prisoners, people who work behind bars, because in point of fact, most prisoners are required to do some kind of job while living behind bars. I also look at workfare workers. These are people who receive some form of welfare. Maybe it's food stamps, maybe it's housing vouchers or utility vouchers. But in order to get that welfare benefit, they have to work. Usually it's for 25 or 35 hours a week. And then the other two groups are really different. One is student athletes. I specifically looked at Division I football and basketball players. And while these are not workers under the law either, like those other groups, one could definitely argue that they too perform labor for the universities, right? They go out, they show up day in, day out, working on the courts, in the fields. And then finally, I look at graduate students, specifically in the sciences. So these are PhD students who do research in their advisor's labs, again, performing labor. Hatton says that the thing they have in common is their status as workers without rights. None of these groups, not the grad students or college athletes, not the prison laborers or welfare workers, none of them are covered by the regular protections most employees have, like minimum wage or overtime laws, or the right to collective bargaining. And because they're not covered by these laws, right, they don't get the minimum wage, not legally. They 
don't have a right to a safe workplace. They aren't protected from discrimination in employment and so on. They don't have a status of worker. They have a different status. So for prisoners, you're a prisoner in good standing if you follow all the rules. And it's super important to maintain that good standing because being a prisoner in good standing gives you access to things like phone calls and visits from your family or being able to buy food that you can actually eat from the commissary or being able to go to the rec yard every day or be able to take a shower, all of these things that are so important for living behind bars. And so all of these groups occupy this different status. It's a graduate student in good standing or a student athlete in good standing, right? For an athlete, you need to be in good standing with your coach in order to actually play every week. So you're not benched. So your coach isn't mad at you so that they'll recommend you to NFL recruiters when it's time. So they occupy these other statuses. They're not workers. There's something else. They're an athlete. They're a prisoner in good standing. They're a welfare recipient. And what I talk about in the book is that their bosses have power over whether they can really stay in that status. And it turns out to be quite a lot of power indeed. Can you give us an easy example so that people can really understand what it means to have a boss who can coerce you to work under specific conditions in order to keep the status? All workers labor under some form of coercion, right? Like all of our bosses have a lot of power over our lives. And so with this study, I'm really just kind of shining light on another corner of that power. And regular bosses in the regular employment and regular jobs, they also wield this type of power, but it's a little bit less visible than I saw it in these other jobs where they aren't considered workers, where their status as, say, a student athlete is everything, in part because they're not a worker, they're not legally protected as a worker. And so their boss, their coach, has so much power over them. For example, the athletes that I interviewed told me again and again that you basically had to do what your coach said no matter what. Now, this could be minor things or things that we would expect and things that we feel like they should do, like showing up for practice, being on time, not talking back to your coach. That seems reasonable. But it could also include things like your coach telling you what to major in. Because if you want to be an engineering major, but the engineering classes conflict with your practice time sometimes, they may not really let you, at least not let you be an athlete in good standing and be an engineering major. Or even more, if you're injured, they may pressure you to play through an injury, even though they're not supposed to. But there's a lot of pressure coming from these coaches and also from within the athletes themselves, right? They want to play. They want to give everything. But their coach is holding these levers of power over whether they can actually play in this epitome of their career, whether they can maintain their scholarship, whether they can go on to play professionally. Their coach has all that power over them. And so really when it comes down to it, these athletes feel like they have to do whatever their coach says all the time, no matter what. One of the things is not only that they are afraid, but also that they know in the moment that somebody else is making money off of their labor. And I think one of the most 
illustrative examples that you had was about the female basketball player who said they went to the final four and that they maybe got a watch, but that the coaches got tens of thousands of dollars in bonuses, but because they're students, they couldn't benefit from their own labor. Can you explain in what way this is so insidious? You know, not all of these workers that I interviewed felt exploited. Not all of them felt coerced, but they were all aware of the power dynamics that pervaded their work. And and that's really what I was exploring in this book. And I really try to convey their beliefs, not just kind of superimpose my own on top of them. But yes, this issue is particularly clear for the athletes because the stakes are so high, especially in these revenue generating sports. You know, these athletes are giving it their all. And many of them, they told me, came into college just feeling incredibly thankful incredibly excited, incredibly lucky, blessed, they said over and over again. I came in, I was so excited because this is their chance. And there's a lot of cultural rhetoric about how lucky they are, right? And so we see these players going to these top schools, these top programs where they do go to the final four. And it just seems like, wow, you know, what a life. They're living large as basically a kid, an 18, 19 year old. But they also told me that by the end of their college career, many of them came to view it very differently. They started to feel kind of exploited. They started to feel commodified, even though the coaches would often talk about things like being a family and how much we care about you. At the end of the day, they felt like their coaches cared about the money that they got, and they got a lot of money from their athlete success. We all know these coaches' careers rest on what their athletes do on the court or out in the football field, and they can lose their jobs, they can keep their jobs, they can get bonuses, they can go on to even better jobs, they can get real fame, but the athletes are putting their bodies on the line, and the athletes themselves get no monetary reward. They're not allowed to get any type of remuneration from their work. In fact, if they sign an autograph for $10 or any amount of money, they can get kicked out and lose their whole career. And those stakes are very, very high. So if being a college athlete is, you know, high stakes, then being a workfare worker, I think, is totally low stakes. They are, in a way, as they would describe themselves, sort of throwaway labor. And I thought maybe you could talk about that. How does workfare work? Yes, sure. Let me just start by saying, yes, the labor is relatively low stakes, but the consequences for these workers, if their boss turns against them, are very, very high stakes indeed. So I'll get to that in a second. So how workfare works is when you apply for welfare benefits, there are lots and lots of hoops you need to jump through before you actually get your benefits, including, you know, they'll say, go apply for this many jobs in this many days. If you don't get any jobs, then maybe we can talk about some potential benefits, we'll see, et cetera. Once you finally pass through all those hoops, they might slot you into various programs. In the past 20 or so years, a big one of those has been doing what they call work activities. So they don't call it a job. They don't call it employment because it's not. They'll assign you to do some type of work. In my city where I live in Buffalo, often people are assigned to pick up trash 
in the parks or maybe tend to the gardens along the roads, that type of thing. Or in New York City, until recently, many workfare workers were assigned to clean subway cars. So they're assigned to these jobs which don't give them any real job training nor any real opportunity for advancement. It's a lot of kind of busy work. It's a lot of grudge work. And they're assigned to these jobs for 25 or 35 hours a week, depending on their case. Most welfare recipients have children. That's the only way they can qualify for welfare. And so during their work hours, they have childcare support. Their kids have daycare. But outside of those hours, there's no childcare support. And they spend all these hours working, picking up trash on the side of the road or whatever. And then they got to go pick up their kids. They don't really have any time logistically to find a, quote, real job. And... If you don't get along with your boss, if your boss yells at you, if your boss didn't see you sign in that day, if any kind of thing happens, you know, lots of things happen at work, or if you call in sick, but you don't have a doctor's note, you can be sanctioned. That means basically you get in trouble. And different programs have different rules, but in New York State, for instance, Most commonly for the first offense, for your first sanction, you get kicked off of welfare for 30 days. So they take away everything. So let's say you get in a disagreement with your boss. Let's say they want you to work in the thrift store warehouse sorting through donations, but that warehouse is full of bed bugs and dust. And your allergies won't permit it. You, you can't do it. You're, you're dying. You're, your eyes are watering. You're sneezing out the wazoo. You just can't tolerate the environment. And your supervisor says, no, you need to get to work. You need to do it. And either you do it or you walk off or you complain. Any of those things can result in you being sanctioned. That means you're kicked off of welfare. That means you lose all public support. And for many people who are already in quite deep poverty, because you have to be in deep poverty to even get those benefits in the first place, when you're taken off those benefits, when those benefits are revoked, including your housing vouchers, they end up homeless on the streets with their children, which are very dire consequences. And so that's the type of power that their bosses can wield over them. The stories that you tell are so heartbreaking. So what you really point to is status coercion. What is status coercion? And I wonder in this context, what is the role of the state in reinforcing status coercion? Or even maybe reinforcing is not even the correct word, but in meeting it out, essentially, you know, in exacerbating the practice and in generalizing it across the board. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how this type of coercion that I'm identifying, you know, it's not a new type of coercion and it's not just relegated to these like strange corners of the labor market. It's really all over the place, but I'm really kind of bringing it to light by looking at these strange jobs. And one of its aspects is that it's very accepted. We kind of think that it's okay that coaches can kind of control these athletes because the athletes are portrayed as kids, kids who need to be kept in line and told what to do, or prisoners. They're bad actors. They've done wrong, sometimes very serious wrong. They're in prison and they need to be controlled and told what to do and disciplined and put to work to be made better. Or welfare recipients, although welfare recipients are not in fact criminals, 
they have been criminalized in, in popular culture and in political culture. We see them also as having done wrong and we need to correct them. And, and so we see the welfare system as one of its role is in putting them in line, disciplining them, putting them to work, teaching them how to work as if, you know, the assumption is that they don't already know, which they in fact do. They've had jobs. So we've kind of created these belief systems which help justify this power. For the most part, we haven't seen, recognize this as a power dynamic because we've just accepted it. It's like fine that these really state actors can wield this power over workers in ways that we don't tolerate in regular jobs. We've said in law that bosses are not allowed to pay workers too little. And so we set amounts that they couldn't go under. We have said in law that bosses are not allowed to hire children to perform labor or that they're not allowed to work their workers 100 hours a week or whatever. We've set limits to control that power dynamic, to control their exploitation. But in these other corners of the labor market, these other spaces where the workers are not seen as workers, we don't have those controls in place. And we see it as generally fine that these bosses wield this power over them. Of course, it's not fine. And the workers themselves know this. And they know it in different ways. I thought it was really interesting that you said workers drew on the same two ideological frames, work and citizenship, which are, of course, the foundations of modern notions of work in America. And so as citizens, what are our rights, even if we're incarcerated or we're performing workfare? Certainly when it comes to incarcerated people, there is some disagreement because, in fact, unfortunately, the U.S. Constitution states that people who are incarcerated can effectively be enslaved, right? They're the sole exception to our Constitution's prohibition on slavery. You can't be enslaved unless you're incarcerated. So there is some kind of popular disagreement and obviously constitutional debate, perhaps, about how many citizenship rights they have and should have access to. But I would argue that because, in fact, we believe profoundly as a culture in the power of work, in the importance of work, this is really the centerpiece of our culture. We believe that one must be productive to be a real citizen, to be a part of the society in meaningful ways and to get the benefits from that society, right? Think of the retirement benefits that people get if they have worked. Think about the dignity and the status in our culture. You know, one of the things we often ask each other when we first meet someone is, what do you do, right? There's all sorts of kind of cultural and legal and symbolic, but also very material things like money that come with work. And so when we start looking at these other jobs where they don't have access to all of those things, it, it clarifies the importance of work and the necessity for those groups to have access to that status as well. Yeah, I thought that one of the things that was super interesting and which came up over and over again is the profound disadvantage that workfare workers have in finding new work and that they're not being trained. In fact, they're entrapped in this cycle of having to perform this essentially 
meaningless, meaning like you can't get a career out of it, work, and they can't leave. Because if you don't show up, then you might have sanctions. But in the meantime, you can't get a new job. So in your mind, what is maybe the number one thing we should be doing when it comes to workfare specifically that we could be doing almost immediately in order to make the system work better? Because at the end of the day, wouldn't we rather have actually real workers who, you know, have a real job? Workfare workers told me again and again, they felt so frustrated. They wanted to be productive. They understand the meaning of productive citizenship, how important work is to our culture, and they wanted it so deeply. And so absolutely, rather than putting people to work in meaningless jobs and treating them as meaningless jobs, either reshape that labor into a meaningful job with rights and wages and benefits, or put them to work in another meaningful job, right? But don't treat the jobs themselves as crap that these people we don't care about should do because they need to be disciplined and taught to work. Don't pretend that it's actually teaching them to work. Don't pretend that it's teaching them skills because it's not. They knew it. Everyone in the system knows it. And it's a profoundly frustrating system and it's a profoundly punitive system. They feel punished by this. And that's in fact the system's goal. And so we really need to reorient that. Perhaps it takes full reconstruction of the system. I don't know. But we need to shift it from one of being punishing to one of helping lift up. And if we're going to center it on work, then center it on meaningful work, meaningful skills through skills training, helping people find jobs, maybe state or federal government-sponsored work, as we saw in the Depression, whatever it is, if we believe in the importance of work, then let's make it important work. I totally agree. It seems like such, in fact, a wasted opportunity for our society and the system that we continue to perpetuate this practice. And we don't even know that we're doing it. I mean, I think when I read this, I was so surprised. I had not understood that this is happening all this time. So one of the things that you also say is that status coercion helps create vulnerable workers on whom neoliberal precarity relies. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So when we talk about precarious work, we talk about how unstable it is, how wages have dropped over time so that people are having to work more hours and or in more jobs to make ends meet. We talk about how benefits have dropped, especially for workers who find themselves outside of those mainstream jobs, like in gig work or in temp jobs or in day labor. This really difficult employment situation that characterizes life for so many workers, that's one of insecurity and instability and often just an inability to make ends meet. But then we have on this flip side, this other power dynamic that I'm talking about, the status coercion. So take, for example, those welfare workers or even prisoners who did sometimes pretty rough prison labor behind bars. And what they told me is that coming out of prison, they said, or coming off a work fair, they were willing to take any job they can get, no matter how bad, no matter how crappy, no matter how many hours a week. Sometimes they would have to take it by law. Because if you're on probation from the criminal justice system, or if you're trying to get off welfare and you're offered a job, if you don't take that job, 
you'll be sanctioned. So there are rules in place that actually enforce this, that require these workers to take these pretty bad jobs in many cases. And so it kind of reinforces the system whereby these employers who are sometimes bad actors, who don't pay enough so that all of their workers have to get food stamps on the side, in addition to working 40, 50 hours a week. It's reinforcing the system where those bad actors, those bad employers can pay substandard wages to the workers, can not offer them proper health benefits, although they should be offering them better benefits. But because these workers have either been conditioned to accept this bad work or are enforced to accept this bad work by law or policy, it reinforces the precarious employment for so many of these workers. So how do we get out of this? You say that we need to engage in a process of ideological framing, which is to say we have to identify the problems that can and should be solved. We need to point to the causes of those problems and specify the remedies. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to be a part of this process? The first step is that we need to kind of change how we think. That's the ideological reframing. I think we need to open our mind to new evidence that suggests that prisoners are also workers, that student athletes, however lucky, however privileged they are, they're also workers. That graduate students also, however privileged they are, however lucky they are, however smart they are, they're also workers because they're performing labor day in and day out in the lab. And the same for workfare workers. No matter what we think of people on welfare, those people who are performing labor for the system in order to receive their benefits, they are also workers. And when we reframe them in this way, when we recognize that they are productive citizens, then I think we can start to not only kind of ideologically bring them into the fold, but practically as well, legally as well. They too should have access to all of the rights and benefits we've attached to work, including basic protections like the minimum wage, right to a safe workplace and working conditions, and importantly, the right to unionize and bargain collectively. Yeah, talk a little bit more about unionization. I was really struck by one of the quotes in the book by a graduate student who said, look, you know, we are classified as students, so we can't unionize. But really, we work like employees in the lab. You know, they expect us to work like this. And this is what we do. That's right. So that's been the primary legal strategy of universities. Now, I should note that at some universities, you know, for example, I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, and we were unionized as graduate students. So some public universities do have unions and a tradition of union organizing, but many other institutions, particularly private universities, do not. And they have resisted it very vehemently in the past decade or so. And their primary strategy for doing so is to say, look, these people are primarily students, not workers. And they talk as if these two statuses can't coexist, when in fact, every person who has attended graduate school knows that they usually coexist And sometimes, especially in the case of science PhD students, they overlap entirely because their education is entirely overlaps with their labor for their faculty advisor. 
the universities argue that if we introduce unions into the mix, if we allow them to organize, that kind of rough and tumble world of industrial organizing will sully the educational environment. You know, I should say, I'm a faculty member, I work in a university, they paint this workplace as somehow being different from other workplaces. But it's not. It's just a place where people go to work and where everyone who works should have access to the protections that we've attached to work. And one of those key protections that we've instituted in law is that workers have a right to bond together if they want to and to kind of work together collectively to bargain with their employer over the basic conditions of their labor. What was the thing that surprised you most that you really didn't think you were going to learn in doing this research? One of the things that was quite surprising is just how parallel the two student groups are with the workfare and incarcerated workers. I mean, they they are so different in so many ways. And the power their bosses wield of them have kind of dramatically different effects on their lives, life or death behind bars or But for athletes, it could be long-term injuries, right? They're very different. And yet, despite those dramatic night and day differences, the parallels and the power dynamics that their bosses wield were remarkably similar. So it's kind of like when we talk about how out in regular jobs, bosses have a lot of power over workers in terms of like their wages or whether they can put you on the night shift or the day shift or transfer you to a random city where you have to uproot your family, right? Bosses wield a lot of power. All bosses wield that power, but it looks very different for day laborers versus middle managers, right? And so we see those differences in the status coercion that I'm talking about as well. But across these four categories, There was so much parallel in their lives. They really labored under this threat of punishment so thoroughly. Even when they had good bosses, they knew what their bosses could do. And so in as much as possible, they stayed in line. And that was really surprising. I have just one more question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think worker organizing always makes me hopeful without fail. One of the small silver linings we've seen from this crisis that we've been in for most of 2020 has been some of the new worker organizing that has erupted from the crisis, particularly among student athletes, athletes who were pushed to come to summer training and or to start their fall football season in the midst of a pandemic. And some of them, more than you would expect, given just how much power their coaches wield over them, they started to step up and push back and express their voices together. I find very real uplift in those voices. Terrific. Thank you very much. Thank you for being on Future Hindsight and thank you for your scholarship. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Hatton's book certainly opened my eyes to the number of workplaces that take advantage of their workers in ways that are way more egregious than run-of-the-mill abuses. Although it feels like a long way toward ridding the kind of coerced labor we just heard about, the path forward does seem obvious. We need a welfare system that is supportive rather than punitive, protections for prison laborers, unionization for graduate students, and fair pay for college athletes. 
But perhaps most importantly, we need to reframe the way we think about labor and change our discourse about who is a worker with full rights and fair wages. Of course, all of us are, no matter if we happen to be a student athlete or on welfare. Next week, our guest is Martha Nussbaum. She's the Ernst French Distinguished Service Professor of Law and Ethics at the University of Chicago. And her latest book is Citadels of Pride, Sexual Assault, Accountability and Reconciliation. I think a lot of people have pride without focusing on money. But when there's also greed added to it, that can help explain why men are allowed to do bad things without accountability. Because the, the structure of our society is such that if you're a wealthy person, you're less accountable than somebody who's not so wealthy. It's often the case that these wealthy people who make money are the ones who are allowed to get a free pass because they're not only greedy making money for themselves, but they feed the greed of other people. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.